Well, thank you guys. It's so good to be with you this morning. My name is Christian, one of the pastors and elders here. I'm so excited, Steve, to have you uh, join our elder team. It's really been a pleasure to walk with him over the past year plus. And I would just say thank you to those of y'all that have been praying for him and for us. I would ask you to continue to do that. Now the work begins. Would you pray that, that God would continue to guide us as we seek to guide you as well? Um, one of the things Billy mentioned a couple times, if you did not get the little communion packets yet, uh, make sure to grab those. We will be using these at the end of the service, so hold on to it. Don't, uh, I was gonna say don't open it yet, but sometimes they're hard to open, so you might need to start trying to open it now so you're ready by the time I'm done. But we'll be doing communion toward the end. I think it's a really appropriate way for us to, to wrap up what we're gonna be looking at this morning. We're gonna jump back into our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. This morning, we are going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13 through 18. And this is really the point in the book of 1 Thessalonians where Paul transitions into the last major section, the last major thing that he wants to address, and that's the coming of Jesus. And we're gonna be in this section for, uh, or in this part of the book for a couple of weeks going forward. But back in chapter three, verse 11, we saw the way that, that Paul kind of laid out for us the main places he was gonna take us throughout the rest of this letter. Remember, he said, I've been trying to get back to you guys. May God direct me to you. But in between that, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. That's what Todd focused on last week in verses nine to 12. So that you're, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. That's what I talked about two weeks ago, especially where Paul focuses on this idea of what does it mean to be holy or set apart or to live differently to please God and to represent him to those around us. And specifically, we talked in verses one through eight about the way that that applies to our sexuality. And then he says that our hearts will be established blameless in holiness at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. And that's the part that we're gonna start getting into today, starting in chapter four, verse 13. But the way that Paul talks about it is he doesn't just talk about the coming of the Lord Jesus as a future event that we anticipate or something to speculate about, he has a very pastoral concern for the people in the Thessalonian church and for us. And has everything to do with what does it mean for us to be holy, set apart, different from those around us in the way that we grieve. In the way that we grieve the death of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the way that we face death in a way that's different from those around us. And it all comes down to, we'll see this morning, it comes down to two things. The hope that we have in death is based upon the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's based upon the truth that Jesus will return from heaven. So if you will, let's read uh, chapter four, verses 13 through 18, and then we'll continue from there. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the, the sound of the trumpet of God, 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There is a lot to unpack in these passages. My point this morning is really just to kind of give us an overview of them, to point out for, I guess you could say, the main points that Paul's hitting on here and leave a lot of the really, really exciting details for Todd to unpack next week. But what I really want you to catch is it all starts with what he says there at the beginning of verse 13, this idea of what it means to grieve with hope and then what he says there at the end of verse 18, to encourage one another with these words. So when we talk about what it means to apply this passage with all the details that he has, the two anchors that he gives us is this is to give us hope as we grieve those who die in Christ and that we use it to encourage each other. And it has everything to do with this idea of what it means for there to be a resurrection when Jesus returns. So again, let's dive back into verse 13 with me real quick. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed. Okay, that, that, that word right there alone should be enough to stop us in our tracks because if you've been paying attention as we've been going through the book of First Thessalonians and even what we'll see after this, Basically, everything that Paul says to the Thessalonians in this letter, except for this section, it has reminder language. It has, you knew this already. You already saw this. You remember we already talked to you about this. But this is the one place in the letter where he says, here's a gap. Here's something that Silas and Timothy and I didn't get to unpack for you when we were with you. You are uninformed, and I don't want you to stay uninformed. We don't want you to be uninformed. He's going to unpack new information for them that he hadn't taught them already. And he says it has to do with those, he says, who are asleep. This was a really common euphemism for death in the Greek-speaking world. Euphemism is basically just a, a word that's more comfortable, a more comfortable way to talk about an uncomfortable topic. So he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. He's talking about death. But... He's not just talking in general about everyone who dies. Because look at what he says, like the very next verse in verse 14. I think the, the NAS Bible, the, the New American Standard, translate a little bit better. He says, he's, he's speaking of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What does it mean to fall asleep in Jesus? Okay, then he, he pulls away the euphemism and he just states it plainly in verse 16. And he says, the dead in Christ. So who are these asleep ones that he doesn't want us to be uninformed about? He's speaking about those who have died as Christians. He says, you need to know something about what it means when Christians die so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. That there's a unique hope that we have as Christians. Notice this, this is really important. He doesn't say not to grieve. That's really important. He doesn't say, oh, because of Jesus rose from the dead, don't even worry about it. He just says, when you grieve, make sure that you grieve with the appropriate hope because of what Jesus has done. And don't grieve like others do, the outsiders that he mentioned in the, very first, in the, the verse right before it those apart from Jesus, who don't know Jesus. He says, we are to grieve the death of our brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that is different and distinct, a, a holy way of grieving. And it's a grief 
that's characterized by hope. Now, a couple weeks ago when we were back in chapter two, actually chapter one even, Todd gave us this definition of hope from the book of 1 Thessalonians. He says, hope is the confident expectation in God's proven faithfulness, what he's already done, and the desire for the good that God has promised but has not yet happened in the future. We look at what God has proven, what he's already done, to give us confidence in what God has promised to yet do. Did you catch again those two ideas of already and not yet that we've been hitting on throughout this book? Those two ideas really do help to frame our lives as we seek to live appropriately in this part of God's story. They especially reshape the way that we think about death, whether our death as followers of Jesus or the death of our brothers and sisters in Christ. They define how the hope that we have in death is different than others. And, and that's what I wanna do for just a, a couple minutes here. I wanna unpack for you, what were some of the other thoughts about death going on in the Greek world at that time? How do they relate to us? Because that's really these others that Paul's talking about. If we're not to grieve like the others, we need to know what the others thought about death. Does that make sense? I mentioned before that, that it was very common in ancient Greek uh, literature to refer to death as sleep. Homer does it in his Iliad, where he talks about one character who slept the sleep of bronze. But it was often used in that way to refer to a sleep from which no one awakes, but more comfortable, kind of like we would say that someone has passed away or passed on. It's just easier to get those words out of our mouth than just to say they died. There were a few groups at the time who had some sort of a concept of an afterlife, but it seems that most Greek people just saw death as, again, a sleep that you don't wake up from. One poet said, said it like this. The sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is but one unending night to be slept through. So again, even then as ancient Greek people would seek to comfort each other when there was a death, most often those, those like comforting uh, messages and letters that exist to this day, it basically comes down to this. I grieved when I heard about the loss of your loved one but really you can't do anything about it now. So comfort each other. Like basically saying, don't spend too long in grief because it doesn't produce anything. Just learn to move on. That idea can kind of filter into the way that we think about death and grief in our culture too, right? I just gotta do something. I just gotta do something productive to get my mind off of it so that I don't just sit here being sad all the time. And true, Learning to move on is an important part of the grieving process, but if all you try to do is just move on, stay busy, distract yourself, that's much more about suppressing grief than processing, right? So let me, let me just pause for a second and give you a little drop-in application here. Do you remember in, in the book of John when Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb? He knows his friend Lazarus has died. He's been in the tomb for four days. Why did he come to the tomb? What is he gonna do? If you know the story, no, you can spoil it. What does Jesus do at the end of the story? He says, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus comes out. But do you remember what he did right before that? The shortest verse in the New Testament. Jesus wept. Think about that for a second. 
Jesus didn't just take a utilitarian view of grief and say, well, I can't do anything about it, so just, just move on. He first took time to weep with Mary. He, Jesus, our Lord, sees value in weeping, in grieving the destruction and pain that death brings. He sees death as a curse, as an enemy that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is the last enemy to be destroyed. Jesus models for us what it looks like to live in that already not yet tension to both grieve and hope. And not just hope for the pain of grieving to end, but hope that because Jesus has come, even death itself isn't the end, amen? Okay, let's see where this goes because there's another really important Greek idea that this one perhaps filters more into us as believers even more than we think. Another common Greek idea was that death was somehow like a, a good thing. From the time of Socrates and Plato, some of the foundational Greek philosophers, Greek society was often set up with this strongly dualistic view of reality, like two parts to it, split in two. There's the physical world that's flawed and chaotic and imperfect from the start. It's just the, basically the, the slag, the, the, the spillover of the wars of the gods, and it's just this twisted, distorted reality. You're always looking through a funhouse because that's just found funhouse mirror because that's just what it is to live in this flawed, imperfect world. And yet, especially someone like Plato said, there is this ideal realm, the metaphysical realm where things are perfect and precise and unchanging. And from that dualistic perspective, death is almost seen as, as a release as an escape from this corrupted, flawed world to get to leave the physical world into the metaphysical, perfect realm of the ideals. You get to take off these, these broken, corrupt bodies and leave this broken and corrupt world to go to what is true and lasting, ascend to a higher realm of existence. This is actually a place where Greek thought and like a lot of Eastern religions really overlap. Most Eastern religions have some sort of concept that death is an opportunity to transcend to a higher realm, a different, a better realm of life. And again, I would say that thought that death is released into something higher has, has trickled into the church in, in, in a lot of ways too. You see it especially in the way that for many Christians, perhaps many of, many of us in this room, when we think about what it means to find hope in death, it, we mainly focus in this, on this idea of going to heaven when we die. I'm gonna come back and talk about that a little bit more in a second, but understand this. This Greek idea that death somehow allows us to escape the brokenness of this world into something better, it's been influential on us as Christians because it's partly true, right? The Bible clearly teaches us that this world is flawed and corrupt, that our bodies are flawed and corrupt. But while Greek philosophy said that it's always been that way from the beginning, the Bible tells a different story. It tells a story that in the beginning, our God created this physical world good and true and beautiful. And the corruption, the flaws that we see in it are the result of our rebellion against this God. And that the hope in this story is not now that somehow the physical world is just this sinking ship that we need to escape from so that it can go down into its own destruction, but that the physical world and our physical bodies are in need of renewal and redemption. 
that the hope of the biblical story is not for us to escape this physical world, but for this physical world and these physical bodies to be made new. This may be a rather novel concept for some of us. So I just wanna pause for a second. Catch your breath for a little bit. Let's think about this a little bit more. One of the clearest places where Paul really unpacks this hope is in Romans chapter eight. Again, Paul talking about the reality there is suffering in this present life. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. But does that glory escape the physical into the spiritual? No, look what he says. For the creation waits in the eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of God. What's the hope for creation? That it will be set free and have this glory that's somehow tied with our glory as the children of God. And he goes on to talk about that in the next verse. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait to just go to heaven when we die. No, what does he say? As we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope, we were saved. Do you see what Paul is saying here? The biblical story is about much more than saving human souls so that they can go to heaven and leave this world to its own destruction. The biblical story is about the hope for the renewal of all things, physical and spiritual. As Jesus said it in the, in the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven, the renewal and salvation of our spirits, but also the redemption of our bodies. So if you, like me, have picked up along the way the idea that the main hope that Christians have in death is just the hope of going to heaven when we die, then you, like me, need to pay attention to what Paul is laying out here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Again, elsewhere in the New Testament, we do learn that the spirits of Christians who die, when our bodies die, we do get to go be with Jesus in heaven. So please understand me, that is true. When Jesus says to the thief on the cross in Luke 23 that today you will be with me in paradise, that is absolutely true. Don't hear me wrong on that. But what I do want you to hear is this. Heaven when we die is not the final destination. That's not the final hope. This is what uh, theologians have often called the intermediate state between death and the return of Jesus. We have a lot more about that in our, in our uh, doctrinal statement on the church website. If you go to the humanity section, we have a whole section on death and what it, what it means. And then in the, the end times section, we talk a lot about what this hope of resurrection is. But for now, let's jump back into 1 Thessalonians 4. Having talked about these different ideas about death, let's see the hope that Paul is calling us for, starting in verse 14. He says this, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, three days later, he rose again, that same body that died rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Paul is drawing a direct parallel between the bodily resurrection of Jesus and what God will bring us to when Jesus returns. This is the reality that we're getting ready to celebrate next month at Easter. The fact that our king, 
when he suffered and died and breathed his last on that cross and was laid in Joseph's tomb, he didn't stay there for long. It was just a weekend trip. Sunday morning, he rose victorious over death. And Paul says, just as even so, this is what God will bring about for those in Christ who die. But with one important difference. Jesus rose three days after his death. The resurrection, the bodily resurrection of those who trust in Jesus awaits the coming of Jesus. Until the coming of the Lord, this is when this is gonna happen. Now, again, this is the place where I get a little bit jealous, but in a good way of Todd, getting to unpack this more next week. That word coming, the Greek word parousia, oh my gosh, it's amazing. I can't wait for Todd to kind of unpack that for us next week. Um, it's such a cool world, but I gotta leave it for him. But, but this idea, again, that, that the hope that we have in death is of bodily resurrection. The Greek people at the time had no category for it. It was like, hold on, this does not compute. Why would we want that? In Acts 17, shortly after Paul leaves Thessalonica that first time, he comes to Athens and he's speaking in Mars Hill to a group of people that had gathered together and he's sharing the gospel of Jesus. And when he comes to the point about Jesus rising from the dead, it says that many people in the crowd just scoffed. Like, what the heck is that? Why would we want that? Why, if we have this dualistic idea that this is the higher realm of the ideals, why would a God send someone back from there to this corrupt world? How is that good news? But again, Paul's working from the biblical story, so he has a category that the Greek people didn't have. He understood that physical life is good, that God's intent for humans from the beginning was not for us to be these spiritual beings trapped in a meat suit waiting to get out of it, but to be these physical, spiritual, unified beings. That both our bodies and our spirits are now in need of redemption. And that ultimately God's intention for humans is still for all eternity that we would be unified physical, spiritual beings. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about. It's about his victory over death that shows us his power to make all things new, including our bodies and including our world. Let me show you one more place where Paul hits on this in Philippians chapter three. He says this, our citizenship is in heaven, amen? Woo! But rather than saying we're waiting to go there, he says, we are waiting from there, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the same power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If you are in Christ, whatever your driver's license says, whatever your passport says, your true citizenship, your true place of belonging is in heaven with God, amen? But the hope that Paul gives us here is not just that one day we will go there, but we are waiting for Jesus come, to come from there to here to renew our bodies and subject all things to himself. That's the ultimate hope that we have in death is a future resurrection like Jesus at his coming. Now, gosh, that might be enough right there for you to wrap your mind around, especially if this is a newer concept to you. I had a professor in seminary who he likes to say anytime like he 
unpacks a lot of stuff. He'll pause and he'll say, now that, that deserves a long walk and a cup of tea. Like, you might be going, yeah, I could use a long walk, maybe something stronger than tea, but I need a little bit of a long walk on this one. But I would just say this, hang with me, because there's a little bit more that I wanna show you from this passage, especially to set up where we're gonna go over the next couple of weeks. You see, because these two main concerns, these two big ideas we've been unpacking, the hope of bodily resurrection and the hope of the return of Jesus, it seems like the Thessalonians had at least a pretty good initial grasp of both of those things. They already had some knowledge of both of them. As a matter of fact, this is what Paul said back in 1 Thessalonians 1, when he said, okay, yeah, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and you're already waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. They get the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. They get the idea that they're waiting for Jesus to come back from heaven, but somewhere in between the two of those, they're going, what do we do now? How do we make sense of this? Think about this for a second. This is a first-generation church, the first generation of the church in this city. And it's a Gentile place. The gospel had just recently landed in their midst, and just like it does with us, it shakes up the whole way they viewed the world before. Just like us, they're going through this ongoing process of learning how to view life through these new lenses of God's story and the way that it confronts and changes the way that they looked at things before. They've been suffering persecution Again, his point in this passage is that they've already begun to experience the first deaths of people within their spiritual family. So understand this. When Paul says we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, he's not just speaking generally about the dead. He has names and faces of people that he loves in mind. And so do the Thessalonians. This is personal. And they need some help making sense of all of it. They're going, in some ways, I think these are the questions on their minds. We know that Jesus rose from the dead. We know that one day he'll come back as king to make all things new. But what does that mean for our brothers and sisters who just died? What's the connection between Jesus' resurrection and theirs? And how does Jesus' return fit into this? If Jesus is gonna come back in glory as king, will our brothers and sisters who died miss out on it? I think those are some of the questions that Paul is seeking to clarify. And again, he says in verse 13, I don't want you to be uninformed. I'm about to inform you. There's new information. There's more information that you need so that you can grieve the death of your brother and sisters. You know? And in verse 15, he gives us that more information. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This is new revelation at least for the Thessalonians. He's bringing them something they didn't know beforehand. He doesn't say, I wanna remind you of what I said before. This is new. I'm declaring to you something that you hadn't heard before. And this is what it is. We declare that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Gosh, there's so much good stuff in there. There's so many really intriguing details. And again, I have to, I have to let Todd do it next week. I'll be good, Todd. <laughs> I won't dive into it yet. But I'm super excited for you to hear what he has to say next week. But what I want you to catch today, again, in all of these amazing, what's the trumpet? Who's shouting? Who's the archangel? All that kind of stuff. Where do we go from here? All that. 
What's Paul's main point concerning their brothers and sisters who died? They won't miss out on the party. When the Lord Jesus comes, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive will not proceed. We won't be out in front of them. They won't miss out on anything. As a matter of fact, they will have the honored position. What does this teach us? about the way that God views the death of his sons and daughters. Psalm 116, 15 says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's precious to him. It's precious. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, the death of your brothers and sisters didn't mean that they failed. It didn't mean that somehow they slipped God's attention and he lost track of them. He sees them, he knows them, he has them even right now and he will bring them with Jesus at his grand kingly arrival, at his coming. And even though we should grieve the fact that death has separated us from them, we grieve in the hope that 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 separation is temporary. Paul readily picks up that euphemism of death as sleep that the Greek people like to use, but he does it by adding so much more meaning to it. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death is a sleep from which we will awake. Amen? Now, that doesn't mean that somehow in between, when our body dies, that our spirit somehow goes into some dormant sleeping state until the resurrection of our body. Some Christians have thought that throughout the history of the church. One group, the Seventh-day Adventists, this is still one of their main teachings. But, but scripture never teaches this concept of soul sleep. Again, I mentioned before what Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writing much later in his life, he talks about this idea that to be at home in the body is to be away from the Lord, but what we want is to be at home with the Lord and away from the body. Those passages kind of give us confidence that at the moment that a believer in Jesus Christ dies, though our, our, our body decomposes, our spirit is with the Lord. But again, that's not our final destination. That's not the grand finale. Here's the grand finale again, verse 16. The dead in Christ will rise first. And he says that we who are alive, who are left, if you're alive at the return of Christ, you will be the second to join the party. But there will be a reunion for all, with all of our brothers and sisters throughout the history of the church. There will be a reunion with our Lord and Savior, and we will always be with the Lord. That is good news, amen? Okay, but perhaps this is the question on your mind, because I know it's the question on my mind. Okay, the dead in Christ are raised. Those who are alive, we all meet the Lord in the air. And then where do we go? Do we stay there? Do we go up? Do we go down? All those, those are really interesting details. We'll kind of explore some of that again in the next few weeks. But I think it's important for us to notice that Paul didn't feel like it was necessary to give us any further details about what comes after this moment. Paul's purpose in this, in this section is not to give us a play-by-play -play prediction of all the events that will happen with Jesus' return. It seems, again, that his main concern is not where we'll go after, that, after this, but who we will be with and how long we will be together. We will always be 
the Lord and with our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout all ages and times and places of the church. What an amazing hope we have in the midst of the grief of death. Again, remember the, the, the definition of hope that Todd gave us earlier. The confident expectation in God's proven faithfulness. God has proven his faithfulness to us in the fact that Jesus Christ has already risen from the dead. The resurrection of the dead has already begun with Jesus. That's why Paul, uh, Paul says in Colossians that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one to be born again from the dead in that way. And he says, but there's more to come. God has proven his faithfulness by raising Jesus from the dead. And he has promised for the future that we who are in Christ will be raised with Jesus at his coming to be reunited with our brothers and sisters and united with Jesus forever and ever and ever world without end. Amen? In the meantime, we live in that already not yet tension. We grieve because death still hurts. It's still an enemy, an enemy that's already been defeated by King Jesus. And one day, the book of Revelation tells us that God will cast death itself into the lake of fire. That's not yet. Jesus has already defeated death. But death has not yet been completely done away with it. And right there in that tension between the already and the not yet is where we as God's people get the privilege of stewarding grief with hope, to walk with God in the midst of grief and hope and to help each other hold those two seemingly contradictory things together, to grieve and hope at the same time. How do we learn how to do that? Well, the way Paul puts it in verse 18 we learn how to do that by encouraging each other with these words. Jesus will return. Believers who die won't miss the party. When he returns, we will be with him always. This passage is about encouragement and hope. Sadly though, throughout the history of the church, and especially I would say in the last couple generations here in the United States of America, these words right here in this section that Paul intends for our encouragement and hope, too many believers have studied these passages and then used these words to fuel speculation and different charts and maps and arguments and even to divide from other believers who interpret it differently. We're gonna continue looking at what Paul says in this book and the next book about the return of Jesus. We're gonna compare it with what Jesus said about his return, what the book of Revelation and other places, 1 Corinthians 15, say about Jesus' return. We should study these passages carefully. After Easter, we'll get into 2 Thessalonians where he gets into even more detail about it. But what I want us to know from the outset as we begin this longer conversation about the return of Jesus, his coming, Paul's main purpose in writing these words to us, and therefore also I would say the Spirit's main purpose in inspiring Paul to write these letters to us is so that we might use these words to encourage one another, not just argue with while we should study them carefully, again, the reason why this matters is because we have such a precious hope to take with us in the face of death. And we want to encourage one another to hold on to this hope and then to be able to hold this hope out to others who do not have this same hope. 
So what I wanna do right now, I wanna talk to you. If you're in this room or watching us at home and you are not yet a follower in Jesus, I wanna talk to you about the reality that this hope that we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, it is a hope that truly only applies to those of us who are in Jesus Christ through faith. The hope of a resurrection like Jesus only applies to those who trust in Jesus. But the Bible also talks that there will be a resurrection even for those who don't follow Jesus as well. Jesus himself talked about this back in John chapter five when he said this. Do not marvel. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his, he's speaking of himself, will hear my voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In Revelation 20, this resurrection of judgment is even called the second death. It's when those who have not trusted in Christ are then separated from God in all that is good forever in a place that the Bible calls the lake of fire. This is a terrifying reality that I share with you, not because we as Christians think we're better than you, not at all, but because we understand that we deserve that same fate of eternal separation from God, and yet God, by his grace, brought us near. God, by his grace, has extended to us forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, adopted us into his forever family so that we now share in the hope of Jesus' resurrection. And we say to you, come, take hold of that hope with us. Take hold of Jesus. Just a few verses before this in John 5, Jesus himself says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Today is the day to trust in Jesus, to hear his words and believe in him and find the hope that conquers death that he alone offers. Amen? Let me talk to one more group before we wrap this up. Perhaps there are some of you in here who are grieving the death of a loved one, but there is a difference You're wondering how this passage lands for you because you're not sure if your loved one who died was a follower of Jesus. Or perhaps you're confident that they weren't followers of Jesus. Where do we turn for comfort and hope in the midst of that kind of grief? And again, in just a few minutes or two, It's hard for me to do justice to the reality of what it looks like to steward that type of grief. But it is one of those things that we want to know how to carry together as a church. So let me just, if I can, quickly suggest to you three things. Here are three things that you can hang your hope on. If you are grieving the death of someone who is not a follower of Jesus, understand this. First, God grieves with you. He does not stand far off from your pain with his arms full. Ezekiel 33, 11 says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn and be saved. The book of Hebrews describes Jesus as a sympathetic priest that we can go to. And so he knows our struggles. He knows the pain we wrestle with. And he invites us to come to him for the grace that we help in time of need. So know this, God grieves with you. And he says, come to me with that. 
The second thing I would say is this. You can trust that our God is a fair, just judge. He will do what is right. Will do what is right. And thirdly, perhaps most preciously, trust in the fact that God himself has promised in Revelation 21 that he himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. He promises that in the new world that he is bringing, there will be neither crying nor pain nor death nor any of those things anymore. So as daunting as the grief feels right now, understand this, God, the God of the universe has himself promised to meet you in that grief and bring you comfort with his own personal presence forevermore. Again, I would say to you, if you're someone who's not a follower of Jesus and you wanna know more about what it means to follow Jesus or have someone pray with you, I know you saw myself and the other elders up here. We'll be up here toward the end of the service. We would love to pray with you. If you are grieving the loss of a loved one, whether that was a believer or an unbeliever, you just want people to pray with you in the midst of that grief. We would love to pray with you as well. But the way that we're gonna wrap up our time this morning is we're gonna take these little We're gonna celebrate communion before we finish our time. So again, please take the little cup or if you need one, um, the elders or the ushers have some baskets in the back, you can grab them. I'm also, as I walk through this, I'm gonna invite the band back up because we're gonna sing one more song before we close. But again, let me remind you, communion, this simple bread and cup, is a simple meal that Jesus gave us to do just what the name says, celebrate our union with each other our union with Jesus through his death and resurrection. That's why we here at Cornerstone, we believe that this meal is specifically for believers, for followers of Jesus, for those who are united with Jesus through faith. The Bible, the initial act that Jesus gave us to talk about the way we we initially first represent our union with Jesus is through baptism. As a matter of fact, after we sing a song, we got a couple people that are gonna get baptized. We got a full Sunday this morning, y'all. It's good to be with you this morning. There's so much that we get to celebrate. But I would say this to you. If you are a follower of Jesus and you've already gone through the waters of baptism to demonstrate that passage from death to new life in Jesus, this meal is for you. This meal is for us to celebrate together. And I think in particular, it's a really appropriate way to end a sermon in which we're talking about the hope of resurrection that we have in Jesus. Look at the way that Paul himself talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11. He talks about how this bread there represents Jesus's body, the body in which Jesus died and rose again, defeating death so that we too might have the hope of bodily resurrection. We have this cup which represents Jesus' blood, which Jesus said was poured out for many for the forgiveness of our sins, so that our sins might be forgiven. He says it's the cup there of the new covenant in his blood, this new relationship, adoption as sons and daughters that we get to share with Jesus through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And especially, I love what he says there in verse 26. As often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, We proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. We stand right there between the already and the not yet. Jesus has already died. He has already been raised. He will come again, and we will be raised with him to be with him forevermore. We have such hope in the face of death. Amen?
Amen. Let's take the, the bread together. thank you for your death, for your resurrection, for the promise of your coming. Thank you for the promise that Paul talks about later in Romans 8, that neither death nor life nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in you, Lord Jesus. As we grieve, would you cement in our hearts the unshakable hope that just as you were raised victorious from the dead, you will one day call us, our brothers and sisters from our graves, to be with you forever. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name.